in front of what was the meat market in ancient Corinth. Uh, most people ate meat very little. Um, it, it was very expensive, and uh, so you had to be a person of means to be able to purchase meat. Um, except a couple of times a, a year when public sacrifices were made to the gods. Now, typically, here's how a sacrifice worked. A family with wealth would bring an animal to the temple of their god that they were going to worship, uh, and they would sacrifice that animal before the god. Uh, certain parts of the animal were um, then cut off, and they were burned up completely as a sacrifice to that god. Then another portion of the animal was cut off, and that was given to the priest for the priest to eat. Then another portion was given to the family, and those portions were cooked quickly. The family would then take that portion of the animal home, and they would have a celebration meal together, sort of a religious uh, ritual meal after they had gone to worship. And then the priest would take their portion, and they would uh, have a meal. A couple of times a, couple of times a year, there were public sacrifices, and there were long lines of people who would come in to sacrifice to their God. Uh, the priest would do the same thing. A portion was burned and was given to the God. The other portion was cooked very quickly and given to the family. But they didn't have time to cook all of the portions that had been given to them. And suddenly these priests found themselves with a lot of meat on their hands, um, and they couldn't cook it quickly enough, and so they would bring it to this meat market, uh, and it would be sold at a discounted rate. Uh, this was a time of the year that the average person, the poor uh, families, they could come and they could buy meat at a discounted rate. Paul addresses that situation in 1 Corinthians 8. In 1 Corinthians 8, the question was asked by the church, is it okay for us to purchase this meat that had been sacrificed to idols. It's cheap, we can get it at a discount, but morally speaking, can we do this? This is meat from animals that have been sacrificed to these Greek gods. Can we eat this meat? Good morning. Thank you uh, so much for being here, as well as for those of you who are uh, part of our online community. Thank you for joining us as well. I would like to begin by presenting you a hypothetical scenario. This is very hypothetical. In fact, it is so hypothetical that you may have trouble envisioning this particular scenario, but let's give it a shot. I want you to imagine that next summer, let's say July 1st, uh, you go to Kroger and you are shopping, and you make your way through the aisles, and eventually you find yourself in the meat department. And you look down, and you see that it is full of ribeyes and filet mignon and baby back ribs and lamb and chicken. I mean, the best-looking meats you have ever seen, and they are all at phenomenal prices. I mean, great-looking ribeyes that are normally $12 or $13 a pound are like $5 a pound. All the other meats sort of priced the same way. 
And you're standing there, and you're kind of scratching your head, wondering what the catch is. And then you notice this sign on the wall above the meat counter that says this, that the owners of Kroger have recently converted to worshiping the ancient fertility god Baal. And as part of their worship, they sacrifice animals to the god Baal. And because they are very devoted, they only bring the best animals before Baal to sacrifice to him. And because they believe that this meat that has been sacrificed to Baal is now holy and sacred, they want their customers to be blessed by purchasing this meat. And so they have discounted all of the meat severely so that you can buy it because they believe that by eating this meat that somehow Baal will bless your life. You see that on the sign, and you're standing there in front of the meat counter. Let me ask you this. Would you purchase the meat? Would you buy it? I told you July 1st for a reason. It's July 4th. It's just a few days away, and your family is coming, and you think, man, I could buy all these great ribeyes and surprise my family. We could grill out. This would just be so exciting for them to be able to have that kind of food July 4th. You know, would you buy the meat? Is it just steak? Is it just ribeye? Is it just lamb? Is it just chicken? Or would you say, no, wait a second. I'm a follower of Christ. I, I don't think in good conscience I can purchase this meat that has been sacrificed to the god Baal. Would you buy it or not? Now, I know that is completely hypothetical, and the odds of that happening are incredibly slim, but that was a reality that Christians faced 2,000 years ago in the ancient city of Corinth. Now, if you're new here today, if you're visiting with us, or if you haven't been in a while, let me take just a second and let you know where we've been. We have been reading through the New Testament book, of 1 Corinthians. And we call it a book, but originally it was a letter that was written by Paul to a church in the ancient city of Corinth. Paul planted this church, he established the church, and then he left. And about a year and a half after he left, some individuals from the church went and found Paul while he was in another city, and they brought him a letter from the church with a lot of questions. As well, they had their own verbal reports about things that were going on in the church. 1 Corinthians is Paul's response to the church, both to those verbal reports that he heard and as well to the things that were in the letter. The first six chapters of 1 Corinthians all deal with the verbal reports, basically the things that he heard from the individuals that brought the letter. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul shifts and he begins to address the specific questions they had in their letter. And one of those questions that we see Paul address in 1 Corinthians 8 is the question over eating meat sacrificed to idols. It's exactly what I talked about in the video. A couple of times a year, they would have these public ceremonies where all of this meat would be sacrificed And they would take this meat and they would sell it at a discounted rate in the marketplace. Or they would hold great banquets in the temple of the God where the meat was sacrificed. And people could come and they could eat very inexpensively this great meat. For us, it's almost like either going to the grocery store and getting a great deal or going to a restaurant and getting a great deal. And in that day, one of the main gods in Corinth was Apollo, 
Uh, his temple was central in the city of Corinth. The columns still stand today. It is the iconic symbol of the ancient city of Corinth. It's located very close to the meat market. And so people in the church in Corinth, those followers of Christ were saying, hey, is it okay if they have this big sacrifice to Apollo and then they sell this meat, is it okay for us to purchase and eat this meat? Is it just steak? Is it just chicken? Is it, is it just lamb? Or is this, morally speaking, wrong for us to purchase and eat this meat? That is what Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 8. If you've got a Bible and you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 8, we're going to read the whole chapter. It's not very long. This is Paul's answer to the question. We'll read through it, make some commentary, and then uh, see how it applies at the end. 1 Corinthians 8, beginning with verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that, quote, we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. Okay, what does this have to do with eating meat sacrificed to idols? Paul begins this by quoting the Corinthians and what they had said, or more likely what they had written in their letter to Paul. We all possess knowledge. Now, they had written to Paul something like this. Hey, Paul, is it okay for us to eat this meat that has been sacrificed to these idols? And in the context of that question, had said to Paul, we all possess knowledge. What were they talking about there? The knowledge they were referencing was the freedom that we have in Christ. For those of us who follow Christ, there is tre tremendous freedom. For those in Corinth who came out of backgrounds where they were worshiping Greek and Roman gods, they suddenly found that they had incredible freedom, that they did not have to follow all these rules and regulations, that it wasn't the drudgery of following all of these ceremonial practices, that they had the freedom to simply worship and follow Christ. And for those in the church who came out of a Jewish background, it was exactly the same. They had freedom like they had never experienced before. Those who were Jewish, they came out of a background where there were 613 rules and regulations and commandments that they had to follow in order to, to be considered good and righteous and following God the right way. Uh, they got these from what you and I call the Old Testament, their scriptures, but it was not just from the Old Testament. Through their tradition, they added all of these very specific rules and regulations. I mean, you had to dot every religious I and cross every religious T, otherwise you were considered unclean. And it was, it was drudgery. It was a lot of work to practice your religion. And then Jesus came along. And Jesus said, you want to know what it all boils down to? Let, let me simplify the whole thing for you. Let me make it very easy. Here's what Jesus said, Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets, all the 613 commandments and regulations all hang on these two 
commandments. Jesus said, look, it's real simple. When you're trying to debate whether you should do this or not do this, here's what you need to ask. Am I loving God? Am I, and am I loving my neighbor? That's really, that's it. That's all you have to do. You can imagine the freedom that this brought to the Christians who thought, wow, this is great. I've, I've got this freedom to simply love Christ and to worship God and to, and to follow Him without making sure that I have followed every rule and regulation. And the great thing about following Christ is even when I mess up, morally speaking, even when I sin, it's not that somehow now I am unclean, now I have been rejected by God. I'm still a child of the King. I'm still loved by God. I confess my sin and move on. I mean, that was so freeing. That's the knowledge that the Corinthians were pointing to here. We all possess knowledge. Paul says, however, you're right. You've got this freedom. But this knowledge has caused there to be pride in your heart. You in Corinth have basically said, we possess this special knowledge about freedom in Christ, and you don't get it. I mean, you just you don't understand it like we understand it. We've got this insight. We've got this knowledge that you don't have. And Paul here says, be careful. Knowledge is good, but knowledge that leads to pride is really bad. And love trumps knowledge in that way. Okay, again, what does that have to do with eating meat sacrificed to idols? Paul explains in the next passage. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols... We know that, again, he's quoting the Corinthians here, an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and through whom we live." Okay, here Paul gives a very simple answer. They ask, do we have the freedom to eat this meat that had been sacrificed to idols? Paul here says, yes. Why? These idols aren't even real. These gods aren't even real. We worship one God. We worship one Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul here makes a reference to the Trinity, something we don't have time to get into today. But Paul says, yes, as a follower of Christ, you have complete freedom to eat this meat. These idols aren't real. These gods aren't real. Go get the ribeye. Take it home and enjoy it. Cook out with your friends. You've got freedom to eat this meat. Now, if Paul ended there, It would make all of the application we're going to talk about later so easy and simple. But Paul adds a caveat. He he gives us a but in the very next verse. Verse 7. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Okay, so verse 8, Paul says again, hey, it's just me. It doesn't change our relationship with God. 
However, if someone by eating this meat feels like they are pulled away from God, then for them it is wrong. In other words, if someone had come out of this worship of Apollo, and that had been their practice, and that had been what they had been devoted to their entire life, and then they became a follower of Christ, if they went to the meat market, and all of this meat was there that had been sacrificed to Apollo, and for them, if they purchased and ate this meat, if that made them feel further away from God and sort of an attachment to Apollo, Apollo, if that happened to them, then for them, it's wrong to eat the meat. So again, very simple here. Paul says, hey, it's just meat. The gods aren't real. The idols aren't real. You and Christ have freedom to eat this meat. Unless by eating this meat, it will pull you away from God and closer to one of these little gods. Then for you, it is wrong. Again, if Paul ended right there, it would make all of our application easy. Paul gives yet another caveat. Here's what he wrote. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that it will not cause them to fall. So here's what Paul says, three things. You've got complete freedom in Christ. You can absolutely eat this meat. Unless, unless your conscience tells you it is wrong and it would pull you away from God. Then for you, it is a sin. It is wrong to eat this meat. However, if not, you still have to consider, will you, your eating of this meat cause a brother or sister in Christ to stumble? In other words, you go to the meat market and all this these animals, this food has been sacrificed to Apollo, and you see a great deal on steaks, and you buy these steaks, and you take them home, and you're grilling out, and your neighbor Bill sees you grilling out, and Bill has recently become a follower of Christ. You say, hey, Bill, won't you come on over and eat with us? But Bill worshiped at the temple of Apollo, and he says, hey, where'd you get this meat? Well, you know, the meat market's having a sale because all of this was sacrificed to Apollo. And Bill sees you eating it, and Bill says, well, gosh, I guess it's okay to worship Christ and to worship Apollo. In the Roman world, it was completely acceptable to worship multiple gods. And so Bill, seeing you eat this meat, says, I guess he worships Apollo as well. And even though you've got the freedom, you've got the right, Apollo isn't real, the idols aren't real, even though you've got that freedom... For you, the best thing to do is to not eat the meat. Otherwise, you will cause Bill to stumble. Is all that clear? Good. Then if next summer you go to Kroger and they have meat that has been sacrificed to idols, you'll know exactly what to do, right? Okay, let's pray and be dismissed. I mean, we, we look at this and we go, okay, that's, that's great. You know, thanks for telling us all of that. Glad to know what they dealt with, but how does this really apply to us today. Here's how it applies. 
There are a number of issues that we as Christians face that we put in the category of debatable issues, meaning good, sincere, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians disagree over these issues. They disagree as to whether or not things are right or things are wrong. And, And when we approach those debatable issues, there are three questions that we need to ask. First question is this, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about that issue? Sometimes we want to call something gray that is really black and white. Now, that was an issue in Corinth. They were talking about sexual sin as being in a gray area, and Paul was like, no, wait a second, you guys are way off. This is clear. You need to follow what the Bible says. What we need to ask, even if the Bible's not clear on it, are there principles that guide us? Are there biblical guidelines that guide us in how to approach this issue, even if the Bible doesn't specifically command one way or the other on this this particular topic? So the first question to ask is, what does the Bible say? Second question is, what does my conscience tell me? So maybe it's not right, maybe it's not wrong, maybe in Scripture it's not clear, but I know that for me it's wrong. That for whatever reason, that if I participate in this thing, it will pull me away from God. It it, it will hurt my relationship with Christ. Then Paul would say, for you, even if the Bible says, hey, this isn't really clear, for you it is clear. It is a sin because your conscience tells you that it's a sin. Then the third question to ask is, will this cause another Christian to stumble? Maybe I've got the freedom. Maybe I've got the right. I feel like, hey, this won't pull me away from God. But will this cause a brother or sister in Christ who is struggling with this particular issue, because of their situation, will my participation in it cause them to stumble, cause them to pull away from Christ? Okay, immediately you're probably thinking of some of the issues. We're going to run through them this morning, and let me just say I'm probably going to make all of you mad with one of these issues, because these are issues that sincere Christians disagree over. Some say they're a sin, some say they're not. Understand this, I'm not saying whether they're a sin or not. I'm saying that good, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians disagree over these issues. However, I know that I'm going to make some of you mad because I'm going to bring up a topic as debatable that you think is not debatable, that you think is a sin. So on Friday, I cleared out my inbox so you can send me that email and tell me exactly what you think. Issue number one, drinking alcohol. You knew that was going to come up, right? That's one, again, where sincere Christians disagree over this issue. It is, it is certainly a debatable issue. In fact, about seven or eight years ago, I preached a sermon on this topic. I thought it was a great sermon. I I, I presented a very balanced view of alcohol. I, I talked about how the Bible prohibits drunkenness. I talked about how we need to use wisdom, especially in our culture where where alcoholism is such an issue. I talked about following the government uh, following the laws of our, uh, of our government, that someone who is under 21 should not drink. 
I mean, I thought it was a very balanced, honestly, just a really good sermon. Uh, until that next week, I received a letter from someone who had visited our church that particular day and who told me why she would never be back to our church and how basically I was a wolf in sheep's clothing um, for saying, not coming out and saying that alcohol in and of itself was a sin. And that letter reminded me, well, this is a debatable issue. People disagree over this. So when we come to these debatable issues, what do we do? We ask three questions. Number one, what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible does tell us that drunkenness is wrong. That's very clear in Ephesians 5.18. But the Bible doesn't prohibit drinking alcohol. The Bible doesn't come right out and say that it is a sin to drink alcohol. Again, there are principles there. We need to use wisdom. Again, in our culture where there are so many issues, but the Bible doesn't prohibit the drinking of alcohol. Some of you are already crafting that email in your head right now. (laughs) Second question, what does my conscience tell me? So, yes, as a follower of Christ, you've got the freedom. Yes, as a follower of Christ, you've got the right. However, maybe for you it is wrong. I have a friend who grew up in a very conservative home uh, where they said that any consumption of alcohol whatsoever was a sin. If he went with a friend to a church that, that took communion and they used real wine, he could not take communion because that consumption of alcohol was considered to be a sin. And for him, it's just one of these deals where he's better not to do it because of the way that he grew up, drinking that alcohol would pull him away from God. Or maybe there are some of you in here, and you came out of a lifestyle where alcohol was a central focus. Alcohol was your little G God that you worshipped daily. For you, drinking is a sin because why? It will drive a wedge between you and God, and it will pull you closer back to worshiping your little G God. So what does the Bible say? What does my conscience tell me? And then thirdly, will this cause another Christian to stumble? If you have someone over for dinner and they have struggled with this particular issue, they've come out of that background, is it wise to serve them wine? Would that make them struggle? Would that make them stumble in their faith? Would they start to think, well, you know, I guess it's okay if Joe's a strong Christian and, you know, Joe's drinking wine, you know, maybe I can... I can do this. Maybe I can have a foot in both worlds. And so Paul here says, look, you've got the right. You've got the freedom. However, love for your brother or sister in Christ should trump your freedom and your rights. Maybe I didn't make you angry with that one. Let's go to another one. Halloween. There are sincere Jesus-loving Christians who disagree over whether or not it's okay to celebrate Halloween. So when we come to one of these debatable issues, what do we do? We ask three questions. Number one, what does the Bible say? Well, certainly, if you're going into your backyard and drawing a pentagram and worshiping the devil, I mean, the Bible's clear, you know, that's, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. However, if your kids are dressing up as cowboys or putting a sheet on them and they're dressing up as ghosts, you know, is, is that wrong? You know, and, and I think Paul might say, just like he said to those in Corinth, hey, they're not real. And, you know, if they're dressing up like this, they're not, 
They're not real. Witches aren't real. I made this argument to a friend several months ago, and I said, you know, look, these, these witches aren't real. And he said, you haven't met my mother-in-law. I said, okay, maybe there are some real witches. I'm not sure, but you know, I think Paul would say, hey, there's some freedom there as long as it's done the right way and you follow certain principles. Number two, what does my conscience tell me? If you came out of a background where this was not celebrated or you associate it with something that really pulls you away from God, then yes, Paul would say, look, for you it's wrong. And number three, will this cause another Christian to stumble? I mean, if you're friends with someone and they, they've had a real issue with this or your neighbors with someone and they've had a real issue with this, are you willing to give up your freedom and your rights out of love for your brother and sister in Christ. You don't want them to stumble in their faith or to go back into this practice because of your freedom. Here's another one. Going to the movies. This one's rated R, but going to the movies in general. Some of you grew up in homes, you grew up in environments where you weren't allowed to go to the movies. That was a big deal. And and maybe now you're allowed to go, but there's a real debate. Can you go and see R movies, PG-13, PG movies? You know, what's the limit? What do we do? How do we approach these debatable issues? Number one, what does the Bible say? Certainly, if you're putting in your mind things that are immoral, well, that's not good. And the Bible speaks about that. Think on those things that are lovely and noble and trustworthy, not on things that are evil. So one, the, 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 that would guide us, even though the Bible doesn't prohibit going to the movies because, you know, movies weren't around 2,000 years ago. There certainly are principles on that. Number two, what does my conscience tell me? You know, for me, maybe it's a sin, even if for other Christians it's okay. I'll tell you, one of my favorite movies of all times, it makes my top ten list, is The Patriot. Remember that movie? It's probably 20 years old now with Mel Gibson. I mean, that is a feel-good movie. That movie happens to be rated R because there's a lot of violence in that movie. Now, normally, I would not go see a rated R movie but the Patriot, I felt like it was okay. You know, there, there are some scenes in there that are pretty violent. There's one where a guy's head gets blown off by a cannonball. It's pretty violent. But for me, that does not tempt me to then go out and try to shoot people with cannonballs. You know, I, I can watch that, and I'm okay. However, there are other movies that I absolutely don't need to see. And for me, my conscience would tell me that those movies are a sin. And then thirdly, will this cause another Christian to stumble? Which was the argument that people made for a long time against going to any movie at all because they would see you going to a movie and they wouldn't know which movie in particular that you were going to. And so the argument was made, don't, don't cause another Christian to stumble because you may be going to see a G-rated movie and they think, well, you know, I guess he's going to watch Fifty Shades of Grey or something like that. And they just don't know. So I think we use wisdom here. Do I have the freedom? Do I have the right? Sure, what does my conscience tell me? Am I willing to give up my freedom and give up my rights so I don't cause another Christian to stumble? I wrote down several other debatable issues. Secular music. Is it okay to listen to secular music? Well, what if it doesn't have any bad language? Well, yeah, I guess it's okay then. Well, what if it just has one bad word? Well, I, you know, I, I don't know, maybe. Okay, what if all the bad words are bleeped out? It's the radio version. You know, can you listen to secular music? How do you approach that? What does the Bible say? What does my conscience tell me? Will this cause others to stumble? Getting tattoos. There was a time that Christians really 
debated this issue. And even when I was a kid, it was debated, can you get a tattoo? Is that okay? Now it's almost a requirement when you become a follower of Christ to get a tattoo. And to get it in the original Greek or Hebrew, some verse, you know, on your arm. But there was a day that that was really debated. I'm dancing. Some of you grew up in a time where you couldn't dance. That was a big no-no. Working on a Sunday. You did not work on a Sunday. You didn't fish or hunt on a Sunday. You certainly did not go to the movies on a Sunday. That was really bad. I'm gambling. Christians disagree over that. Santa Claus. Christians disagree over that. What do we do when we face all of these issues? What does the Bible say? What does my conscience tell me? And will this cause another Christian to stumble? Paul would say at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you've got the freedom. You've got the right. However, love for your brother or sister in Christ should trump your freedom and your rights.